All right, so yes, we went to Williamsburg this weekend and I love the fall. It started getting cold. We're gonna have some long sleeve tees for you at the fall retreat. Sorry, Adam, I told one of the things. My bad. Um, but I just love fall and I love this. It's not really fall yet, but it's almost fall. I love this season back to school. I love the new year and all that a new year can bring. What I don't love is what sometimes is brought by the fall, and that are that is gnats. Does anybody struggle with gnats in their kitchen like in the past month? Okay, fruit flies. Are those gnats? Are they fruit flies? Is my science off? Yeah. Fruit flies. Let's say fruit flies. What are gnats? They are outside. All bugs should be outside in my opinion. <laughs> I tell my kids, I'm like, if it's outside, that's their home. We leave them alone. Do not kill them. But if they come in our house, you can do whatever you want, except for keep them. <laughs> but yeah, we started having so many fruit flies, like out of nowhere. We came back from like two days, and we left a couple bananas out, and there were all these fruit flies. I don't know where they came from. Not the bananas, I'm sure. But there were all these fruit flies, and we, I cleaned the drain, I cleaned the counters, I made sure there were no dishes left in the sink. I was like, why are all these fruit flies everywhere in the kitchen? I do not like them, they're so annoying. And then I cleaned everything, I cleaned the drains like with some intense chemicals. I was like, bring out all the chemicals that I don't normally use. I was like, I'm bringing them out because I could just not get this problem under control. They were everywhere and then they started being in the living room. And then I even saw a few upstairs, and I'm like, there's no food upstairs, although there probably is under the beds because my kids do that. But I was like, why, why are there so many fruit flies? I have cleaned, I have done everything I know to do, and they are still a problem. What is going on? And then one day, a couple weeks later, when we saw that infestation of fruit flies from somewhere, I don't know where, I thought I had taken care of all the problems. We are rearranging our back deck that comes into our house, and there's like an open door there. Also an open door for you all if you want to come in. There's a fridge there with a lot of beverages, some LaCroix, some sodas, some Gatorades. Adam, you can get a Gatorade if you want. You don't even have to dress up as whatever you said you were earlier. <laughs> um, but we were moving things around back there, and then I see this potato bin that I do, I'm not using currently because it's not even in my kitchen, right? And I go, you guys know what a potato bin is? It's like a place where you get potatoes, <laughs> the bin. <laughs> Super descriptive, I know. So I'm moving this wooden bin. Don't do it, don't do it. <laughs> okay, and I'm like, oh, there's a couple fruit flies. And then I'm like, oh no. And so I do it. I open the lid and I want to throw up. <laughs> There's a bag of potatoes, or what is left of potatoes in there, and there are like a million fruit flies. That's an exact number, a million, I counted them. So there were just so many fruit flies, and I'm like, oh my gosh. So I close the lid quickly, and I go and I get this intense spray that I would never use around my kids, but I was like, it's coming out. And so I go get the spray, and I just spray the entire bin on the outside first, 
and then I open it up and I spray the inside and then I'm like oh my gosh Josh's grandparents gave us this like we need to keep it we can't just throw it out right so I go get Josh and I'm like honey there's a problem I have found the root of our problem with the fruit flies and it's in the potato bin and so Josh being so kind goes and does something with it I don't even know because I wasn't in the room because I was like I'm not gonna have this thing flying all around me and then Josh comes back in and he's like I think we need to throw it away <laughs> and so we threw it away and guess what our fruit fly problem is gone that's just a testimony of praise to the Lord <laughs> But it's kind of funny, you know, when it's about fruit flies, right? But how about those times in our life when we find ourselves at the same place again? And we're like, what the heck? I have done everything I know to do. I have cleaned the counters. I cleaned the drain. Like, I did all these things, and I'm still here? I'm still doing this? This behavior is still part of my life? Like, what then? Is there any hope then? We're going through a series through the book of Luke, and we're talking about hope and how Jesus brings hope in every situation. And tonight, we're going to see that even in those situations, that even when we find ourselves in the same position again, we find ourselves doing the same thing again, that we were like, we'll never do that again. We find ourselves going that route again, that even there, there is hope. And the hope comes from getting to the root, getting to the source. Because sometimes we look at behavior and we're like, oh, I can just fix that. I can just fix that. I thought, oh, I can just clean the sink. I can just clean the you know, counters off and the fruit flies will go away. But they didn't because I never got to the source of the problem. And tonight we're gonna see through our chapter in Luke that a lot of times the issue of sin in our lives has a root of unbelief the root of unbelief that God is who he says he is and that we are who God says we are. So would you turn with me to Luke chapter 3. If you need a Bible tonight, we have some free Bibles we would love to give you. And Adam has those, so you can just slip up your hand and he will give you a Bible. Thank you, Adam. Luke chapter 3. Last week, Josh preached about the birth of Jesus and the birth of John the Baptist, and we saw that it is in motion, that God's plan to come and to give great hope to the earth through redemption, through restoration, through healing, it's in motion. Jesus is coming. That's what we learned last week. We see that Jesus' mother, Mary, says yes to this plan, even though it radically transformed her life in ways that she could never imagine, in ways that were hard at first, that she said yes to the great adventure with Jesus. 
And tonight, where we pick up, we're going to see that Jesus is now 30 years old. So it's been a few years since he was born. Jesus was born, John the Baptist was born, and then we pick up in Luke 3, and Jesus is now 30. We know that because Luke, the author of the book, the author of this gospel, the account of Jesus' life on earth, Luke tells us, he gives us all the details, because Luke wants us to remember that these stories really happen, so that they're not just stories in a book, but they're our history. And they're the plan of God in motion to redeem and to restore everything and make it right. And so we see that Luke is 30. I do say the 30s are the best years, uh, probably because I'm in my 30s. And it's been really great so far. 35, as of a couple weeks ago. Right, Terry? I know, it's crazy. Can't believe it. But 35 is great. Did you say almost 40? I am closer. Okay, like the day after my birthday, I was like, Josh, I'm now closer to 40 than 30. <laughs> like, this is crazy. Um, but Jesus is 30, and Jesus' 30s were pretty great for the rest of the world. So, praying that for us too. So, um, let's see. So yeah, so Jesus is born, but Jesus hasn't done any miracles or any great things yet. He hasn't healed anyone. He hasn't helped people walk that couldn't walk before. He hasn't set people free. He hasn't done anything yet, right? He hasn't done anything that we would say is of eternal significance, except for perhaps being God in human flesh. That's pretty impressive. I don't know if any of you could do that. I couldn't do that. So, um, so yeah. So Jesus hasn't really done anything like impressive or, um, you know, anything that we would be like singing about or worshiping him for. But we pick up and we see that um, Jesus comes down to a river. Okay, so Jesus is 30, hasn't done anything really impressive, and he comes down to this river. Now, at this river, John the Baptist, the other baby that was being born last week, that was a miracle baby as well, um, John the Baptist is baptizing people, that's where he got his nickname, is baptizing people in the Jordan River. And if any of you were here last semester, we walked through the book of Exodus last semester, and we learned about Israel and their journey where they were in slavery, and Jesus brought them out of slavery into freedom. And in that, they actually crossed over the Jordan River at one point. And so this picture that we come to tonight is John baptizing people in the Jordan River. And he is celebrating this new revival that's happening, this new awareness that Jesus is coming, that the Messiah, the one we've been hoping for, the one we've been waiting for is coming. And so John the Baptist is telling everyone, hey, Jesus is coming. Like the Messiah, the Savior of the world is coming. And so Jesus, so John the Baptist is baptizing people and he is saying, hey, you guys need to repent. And he says, repent, turn away from your sin and turn toward God. He says, repent, because the kingdom of God is near. And one day he's there baptizing people and Jesus comes. And Jesus is like, I'm here to be baptized. And John the Baptist is like, whoa, you're Jesus. Like, you need to baptize me. 
But Jesus gets baptized. He fulfills a bunch of prophecies from the Old Testament. If you've never read the Old Testament, it is so rich. It is so rich with God's plan and setting God's plan in motion. And it's so rich with prophecy and with showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of all things. And so Jesus comes and he is baptized. And that's what we're going to pick up tonight. Jesus has just been baptized. And then we pick up in verse 21 of chapter 3 in the book of Luke. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And he was praying. Heaven opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice from heaven says, You are my acquaintance who can earn my love if you prove that you're worthy enough. Is that what you guys have? Hmm. You can earn my love and approval, God says, if you work hard enough. If you do good, more good than bad. Are you guys with me? Do you have the same translation? <laughs> Maybe it's a different translation, right? This is what it says. God, the heaven, Heavenly Father, says from heaven about Jesus the Son, as the Holy Spirit is there, this beautiful picture of the Trinity, of this God who is three persons in one. It's a beautiful picture that we see. God the Heavenly Father is saying about Jesus, saying to Jesus, you are my son whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. Now does this make any sense to you? Jesus hasn't done the miracles. He hasn't fed the 5,000 yet. He hasn't healed people. He hasn't raised anybody from the dead. Is that really what God thinks? You are my son whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. It's because as a child of God, Jesus is secure. Jesus had an identity that was secure, and it wasn't based on something he could do for God. God already loves Jesus because he's his child. And we're going to see that Jesus walks into temptation to sin from this point of security as a child of God. And that changes everything. This is what brings hope in the face of temptation. That Jesus is secure in his Father's love, and because of this, he can trust God. Just simply that. And as we see this in Jesus, we get to know that this is what Jesus offers for us as well. That living from a place of security and being able to face with certainty Whatever God has for us, that's what God wants for us. So we'll continue with Jesus now. He gets baptized. Luke goes through some genealogy. You might see um, some, this person is about this person and this person. And that is a genealogy. And it's Luke saying, walking all the way back to Adam, the first man. And he says, hey, Jesus is legit. Jesus fulfills all the prophecies. Jesus is from the right lineage. And Luke is saying, this guy is legit. Kind of like how when Jesus was baptized, 
by John the Baptist. He gives legitimacy to John the Baptist's words and baptism says what this guy's saying is true. Now we see Luke doing that with Jesus saying, this guy has the right lineage to be the Messiah, the one that they had hoped for. So we pick up in chapter chapter 4, verse 1, to find out how did Jesus respond from this place of security when he was tempted. So chapter 4, verse 1, you might have to turn the page. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan River and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. Can you guys imagine? He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. I feel like that is the most understated like mention. Like he ate nothing for 40 days, and at the end he was hungry. Like, yes, he was like, we say starving when we're like, already had lunch two minutes ago, you know, we're like, I am starving. Jesus had nothing to eat for 40 days. And so he was hungry, Luke tells us. And then it says, he goes immediately to the desert. For 40 days he fasts and then is tempted. So 40 days, this idea of this 40 days fasting is important. Maybe if you read the book of Exodus or if you were here for TNL last semester, you remember that 40 is familiar, right? 40 is the number of years that the people of God spent between their time in slavery and between that time and when they finally entered the promised land. And do you know why they had to go through those 40 years in the desert wandering around? It's because they didn't believe God said who he was. They didn't believe God said he was who he said he was. And they didn't believe that God, what God said about them was true. And so that led to disobedience. And that's why they had to wander around between this now and not yet, between this time when they were in slavery before they got to go to the promised land. And so Jesus is showing us, it's a symbol of these 40 years, and it's Jesus showing us how to do this right. How to come to freedom by trusting that God is who he says he is, and that we are who God says we are. So for 40 days, Jesus fasts. Now what does fast mean? Fasting is when you go without something, and in this case, food, for the purpose of denying your bodily instincts, desires, and feelings so that you can have self-control over your body and not let your body control you. Bringing these feelings under submission under the authority of what God says is true. Fasting is learning to be dependent on God instead of being independent. And it's seen a lot in scripture Um, and it is so helpful and it has been helpful for me in learning to control my appetites in life and not meaning food, only food, but, but learning to control myself so that myself doesn't control me. So let's see how this plays out. So Jesus goes through fasting where he is not eating and he is spending time in union with God. 
and he finds nourishment and sustenance in God only. And that sets him up really well to walk through these temptations that we're going to look at next. Rich Velotis says, Fasting is not about self-punishment. Neither is it an act of cruel self-deprivation. It's about refusing to be ruled by our appetites, governed by our desires, and captive to our cravings. It helps us to find nourishment and sustenance in God. So Luke sets us up, and then he tells us how Jesus was tempted. So Jesus is entering this temptation from the place of security, knowing that he's a child of God, loved, right, already. And Jesus is set up well because he is fasting. He's learning how to say no to himself and yes to God. And so we go through these three temptations. The first one is this, verse 3 and 4 of chapter 4. The devil said to him, Jesus, if you were the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. So what is the devil, the enemy of God, what is the devil saying to Jesus? He's like, if you're the son of God, he questions, right, the legitimacy of what God has already said. God said, remember, you are my son. So immediately it's saying, if you are the son, questioning and asking Jesus to question that truth. If you are the son of God, tell the stone to become bread. So he is asking Jesus to question what God has already told him. And then he's asking Jesus to eat, which doesn't seem like a bad thing, right? But he's fasting. He has set aside this time for God and he has purposely entered a fast. And so in that case, it wouldn't have been what God had desired for him. And so we see that Satan encourages Jesus to eat, and eating is just a desire, but in this case, it would not be right. Jesus understands that this challenge from the enemy, from the devil, is what the scripture calls the enemy of God. Jesus understands that this challenge is a challenge to give himself over to his feelings and his appetite instead of the truth of God sustaining him. And Jesus reminds the devil that it is written, me means in the Old Testament, it is written that man shall not live on bread alone. Because the word of God, the Bible, is the word of God. And we can trust what is written. We can have certainty. And the Bible, the scripture, has power in the face of temptation, right? So that when we're cleaning off of the, you know, cleaning off the kitchen counter again, and we're like, what is the problem here? We can say, oh, wait, let me go to the source. What am I not believing that God has said is true about himself or about me? And so Jesus goes straight for it. He says, it's written, man should not believe, man should not live on bread alone. And Jesus knows that our hope in life doesn't come from food or satisfying our bodily appetites, whatever they may be. It comes from Jesus alone. 
The second temptation, which happens immediately after the first, which I think is kind of funny because it's kind of like the enemy's like, okay, here, if you are the son of God, let me see if you'll question that, and let me see if you'll go ahead and eat since you're hungry. And Jesus says, man doesn't live by bread alone. And then immediately Satan's like, okay, let me try something else then. (laughs) And you're like, he didn't even wait. He just goes right into it. The devil says to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. There's another one, actually. Next. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, the devil, it will all be yours. Right? So now, bless you, sorry. Now, (laughs) Jesus is faced with the temptation and the lure of power, right? The devil says, I'm going to give you all these kingdoms. And what did Jesus come for? Josh said last week, Jesus came to bring about a new kingdom. He came to bring about the kingdom of God. And the enemy of God is saying, here, I'll give it to you. It just requires you worshiping me. Like, no big deal. It's an afterthought. Don't worry about it. Just worship me and I'll give you all these things that you came for. But Jesus knows what's written. He knows the truth. He knows what scripture says. And he knows that God has already said, do not worship anything, anyone other than me. That no one is worthy of our worship except for God. And to do so would be disobedient. And so Jesus believes God said who he, that believes God is who he says he is, and he believes that he is who God said he is. And he answers, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then Jesus had to trust the process, right? There were no shortcuts. Jesus had to trust the process. Sometimes we might take shortcuts. And we might think, oh, well, God... You know, God would probably want me to have that anyway. But the way that we go about things is important. We need to have integrity. Most of the best things that you're going to experience in life are going to take work. And if you take a shortcut, you will jeopardize that work. I know this is not relatable for anyone. I'm just so sorry. <laughs> You're all like, oh, she's reading my mail. Um, and so we see in scripture that, that this is how Satan offers, often tries to lure believers, um, that there's lies. Because did Satan really have the power to do that? No, but guess what? The devil doesn't have to play by rules. Like scripture says that the devil is a liar. And the devil deceives. I have a question for you. How do you know you're being deceived? At what point, and this is like a, you can say it out loud, at what point do you know that you're being deceived in anything? What does it take for you to know that you're being deceived? Think about it for a moment. Say it out loud if you can think of it. What did you say? Too good to be true. 
Sorry. You recognize like a pattern, maybe? When you know the truth, right? Otherwise, you're still being deceived. It's when we know the truth that we recognize deception. And so as Jesus is using scripture, is using the truth of God's word to combat the lies of the enemy, it shows us that we need to be people of the word, that we need to be people who do believe God says who he is. God is who he says he is. I'm going to get it before the night's over. God is who he says he is, and that we are who God says we are, and that God is trustworthy. And we need to know what God is saying, like what is trustworthy, so that we can recognize what's not true. Did you know that when people are uh, at the treasury, when people are trying to train in order to identify counterfeit bills, do you know that they don't study counterfeit bills? They don't, because there can be so many variations. And just like we see with, we'll see that they're next, but just like we're gonna see with these three temptations, there are so many variations of the temptation of sin. It'll be different for everybody. But do you know what they do study at the treasury? They study real bills. Because when they study the real bills, they can identify the fake ones easily. And so when we study the real bill, this is worth some dollar bills, y'all. Like, I'm serious. For a lot of dollars. When we study the real scripture, when we study the truth, we will be able to identify when something, whether it's the enemy, whether it's our our human nature, whether it's our environment, when something is lying to us, right? When we study the truth, we will believe God. And all sin comes from that root of disbelief. And so if we study the truth and we choose to believe, then we are going to have victory over sin as well. So in this case, we don't have to take matters into our own hands and cut corners. We don't have to lack integrity with our work, but instead we can trust God. How's that for an idea? We can trust God with our schoolwork. We can trust God with our families. We can trust God with our friendships and our relationships and our job. And we can trust God that if we have integrity, that God will bring about whatever God was going to bring about, whatever God has in store for us. We can trust that God does work for the good of those who love him, like Ephesians tells us. And we can work recognizing that nothing can give us more than Jesus. Nothing can offer us more than the way of Christ. So the third temptation is found in verse 9. It says, The devil led him, Jesus, to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, remember he's getting Jesus to question, if you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. This time, the devil uses scripture. Twist it, but it's still scripture. 
He says, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. He says, God says this about you, Jesus, like, go ahead, just test God, just do it. And you know what? We're at the highest point. There's going to be lots of people that will see this. Wow, this is a way to start your ministry, right? Jesus hadn't yet started his public ministry. That would have been a great way to start, right? You've probably gotten lots of people at your first TNL that way. That was funnier. <laughs> and what does Jesus answer? Jesus says, It is said, Do not put your Lord, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So Jesus is being asked by the devil to trade what's eternal for what's visible. Jesus is being asked to bring himself praise by putting God to a test. Satan says, Jesus, just say, prove it, God. You know? And what does prove it, God, stem from? Disbelief, right? A lack of faith, perhaps. Because faith right there, but faith in God is trusting God in the dark, right? It's not faith if you can see everything right in front of you. That requires no faith. Galatians 1.10 says, am I now trying to win the approval of God or people? If I'm trying to win the approval of people, I'm not a servant of God. I'm a servant of people, right? And so the enemy is saying, hey, fling yourself off of here. Everybody will see it. It will be so great. It'll be a great start to your ministry. People will love you. And Jesus answers with the truth. He says, do not put the Lord your God to the test because that shows a lack of faith. It shows disbelief in God and what God says. So Jesus shoots down all of these temptations, right? He's three for three. He did a great job. What did you guys say he did a great job? Me too. And let's see what chapter four, verse 13 tells us. Because this is over, right? Like he's tempted and then he goes on his life and he never has to struggle with temptation again, right? Is that how many, like did any of you guys think that's the way that it works? Well, this is what it says. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him, Jesus, until an opportune time. So Jesus gets tempted again. And Jesus does perfectly again. He responds well in the face of temptation because he responds with belief in God, with trust in God, and from a place of security that he's a child of God and he can trust his heavenly father. Hebrews tells us that we do not have a high priest, meaning Jesus, who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. But we have one high priest who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, 
yet he did not sin. I pray that this brings you hope tonight. That you can see that when you face temptation, it's not sin. When you face temptation, it doesn't mean that you're sinning. It doesn't mean that you haven't yet arrived to this position. Because Jesus himself, God in the flesh, faced temptation. And yet he lived a sinless life, the Bible tells us. And he had to because he became our sacrifice for our sin. And so Jesus lives a sinless life, but he faced temptation over and over and over again. And so have hope that if you're facing temptation, if you're like, man, I am back here again, being tempted by the same things, it's not over. It might just mean that you need to get to the root. It might mean that you're not believing something that God has said is true. But temptation itself is not a sin. It's what we do in the moment of temptation, how we answer, how we respond to temptation. So how can we do the same tonight? How can we do what Jesus has done? What came to mind earlier when we were going through the different temptations of Jesus? Um, the temptation of appetite, the temptation of power, right, to rule, the temptation to have praise of the people. What came to mind when I was talking earlier about fruit flies? What came to mind? Is there something that God brought to your mind? If so, God wants you to be released from that. He doesn't want you in bondage. He came so that you could live in freedom. Jesus came, he died on the cross, so that we could be children of God. And our identity as a child of God means that we are secure. It means that we are secure in Christ, it means that we can trust God because of that security. And it changes how we can respond to temptation. So there is hope because whatever we face, whatever we're going through, Jesus has been tempted in the same way. And Jesus responded well. He responded with faith in God, and he responded with the truth of the scripture. And so I'd like you guys to stand for a moment. I'll ask Julia to come and strum some things on the guitar. And as we respond, I just have a couple of questions. You can close your eyes if that helps. It helps me to concentrate sometimes. The first question is this. Have you accepted God's offer to be a child of God? Have you said yes to following Jesus? As we'll see throughout this semester in the book of Luke that accounts Jesus' life on earth, Jesus came for you. 
and he came to offer you relationship with God. He came to offer you a new identity, a secure identity, more secure than any titles, any degrees, any relationship status can offer. An identity that is secure. We are loved by God, not for what we can do for God, but because we are God's child. So have you accepted that offer to be a child of God? If you haven't, God is with us, the Bible tells us, and all you have to do is what John the Baptist said to do. He said, repent, turn away from sin, and turn towards God. We just need to say, yes, God. I'm turning towards you. I want to follow you. And so maybe you'll talk with God in this moment of response about becoming a child of God and saying yes to following Jesus and accepting the love that God is offering you. The second question is this. Is there something in your life that you've been battling? And like the the fruit flies, they're back again. Maybe they've wandered to the living room or upstairs and you're just feeling defeated. You're feeling like, I don't know what else to do. Well, the good news is that God can defeat them. And you get to work from a place of rest in the truth of the scriptures, the truth of God's words. And you can experience victory over sin because God takes you from being a sinner who sins and gives you this new identity as a child of God And as you walk in agreement with God, as you choose trust, as you choose to believe God, God fights your battles. You only have to believe. And from that belief, trust in what God says. When I was in college, I had a moment where God highlighted my distrust. I was at a stop sign and I just felt like God was asking me, do you trust me? And I said the socially appropriate Christian thing and I said, yes. And then I felt like God was asking me again, do you trust me? And I paused and really thought about it and I said, no. Now why didn't I trust God? Well, this question and the honest answer I gave helped, God was helping me break a dam in me that that had kind of walled up all the hurt and pain and held it inside of me. And it all came pouring out. I was stuck in sexual addiction and God showed me that that stemmed from distrust in him from when I'd been sexually abused when I was a young girl. And I had this warped view of my body and I was desperate for affirmation and I was looking for praise that someone would see me and love me. 
And that was the root. It was this disbelief that God loves me. And it was this disbelief that God could make me whole. And when God spoke over me that night, he said to me that you are known, you are loved, you are safe with me, and you can live free from this bondage, secure. So I started to trust God, and I started to read the Bible. And can I tell you that the words in the Bible stuck out to me like never before when I believed that they were actually true when I believed that they were talking about my God, and when I believed that they were talking about me. They leaped off the page in timely ways, and and God was speaking to me and bringing more, more hope into my life and more joy. And so maybe you're sitting there and you need to experience the love of God. You need to hear that God loves you. Maybe you've heard that, but you're scared to believe it because of things that have happened to you or because of decisions you've made. But would you let God's love penetrate your heart tonight? So whatever is going on, there is hope. There is hope in Jesus. And we can overcome because we are secure in Christ. Because we can believe that God is who he says he is. And that we are who God says we are, his dearly loved children.